Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with David Maney, who is a performer and a disability worker. He works with people with disabilities, or what are called perceived disabilities, which is the new term that I was not familiar with. We have a bit of a chat about that, about the nature of having an invisible disability, and uh, about new age uh, religious beliefs and experimental medical treatments. That was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed having the conversation with him. I hope you enjoy listening to it. I wanted to say thank you to everybody who has come on over uh, to the Patreon, who's been uh, subscribing there either for a dollar or for five dollars or for more than that. I, it, it makes a massive difference to what I'm able to do with this work. Um, it's a, I really appreciate that. Thank you, everyone, who's just emailed alicerfraser at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, who tweets to me at alliterative. Please feel free just to say hi or tell me your opinion. I wanted to say hello to all of the people who've come over from The Bugle who are listening to this podcast now. I'm sorry, this isn't a satirical news podcast. It is me having chats with friends about difficult... Well, not even with friends, with people, interesting minds about difficult subjects. It's a safe space for dangerous ideas and I really like having it, but I'm afraid it isn't particularly topical or particularly funny. That said, you're welcome. I hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoy doing it. Uh, I'll let you get on with listening to the conversation I had with David Maney. You're having tea with Alice. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so uh, I have a little routine. I'll pour the bath because obviously I can't hear he the Alice cast, the tea cast, over the pouring of the bath because mm-hmm. of my tinny Apple speakers. And then once I'm firmly ensconced in the bath, make sure my hands are nice and dry and then... Turn on tea with Alice. Turn on tea with are, Alice. in fact, making of yourself a tea. Yeah. What is a bath but people tea, really? Yeah, human steeping. So who are you and what are you drinking? <laughs> uh, my name is Dave Maney. Uh, I'm drinking peppermint tea on this cool evening. Uh, and I, what do I do? Uh, I'm a member of Popo Moco, which is a queer comedy ensemble. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also one half of the duo Justice and Trainwreck, uh, which is cowboys who do historical reenactments of tragic events. Uh, I'm a writer, uh, disability arts worker. What First of all, what is a disability arts worker? It seems like a non-specific term, a little bit like, but not analogous to sex worker, where part of the purpose of it is obscuring what function you perform in that industry. Yeah, as soon as I said it, I went, what does that actually mean? Um, Because it goes under so many different titles as well, like support worker, engagement officer, arts worker... Yeah, it has a lot of different titles. Um, Basically, the role that I work with, um, I work at City of Port Phillip Council Mm -hmm. um, with a group of people with uh, perceived disabilities. Again, talking about different titles and how they constantly shift. Um, Yeah, so... um, Perceived disabilities. Perceived disabilities, yeah. That seems almost sarcastic in its evasion of responsibility. I mean, I'm sure it's meant it's meant to sort of make people with uh, disabilities or impaired functioning 
or whatever it happens to be feel less disabled yeah, right? or, or less stigmatised. Mm. But it does seem a little bit like... It's only probably in the last six months I've started using that term. Mm-hmm. And I think I've kept on using it because it always draws people's attention to, well, what do you mean by perceived disability? Yeah, because uh, it almost seems like a category of disabled people who are only perceived to have disabilities but don't, in fact, have disabilities. Hmm. I guess, yeah, all titles, labels, identities, <laughs> works in progress. I use that one because I kind of come at it from the social model of disability. Um, the idea that we are, we are not disabled, but we are disabled by our environment, mm-hmm. by the people around us, if they so choose to do that. So, mm. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, in that civilization makes disability um, possible, if you know what I mean. In mm. that if you had a disability before this society were available to you, like nature doesn't have ramps. There's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's only in a world where most labor is not physical that you can have members of society who, whose disabilities are seen as perceived disabilities. Mm. Unless they're intellectual disabilities, perhaps. Yeah. It's very interesting because I don't... I don't know how I feel about it. Yeah, that, I don't... I I, I'm constantly working with it as well. And... Hmm. Maybe I'll have to... <laughs> no, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying you're wrong mm. at all, but it is, it's an unusual sort of term. Yeah, if, given mainly, I think, the disabled or dis- somebody who is a person with a disability hasn't, I think, become s- dirtied with the stigma that makes people move from one term to another. Mm. Like, I think there's a lot of, a lot of sh- term shifting at the moment where perhaps uh, it's the easy option compared with attitude shifting. Mm. You move from whore yeah. to prostitute to sex worker and the stigma sort of <laughs> is on a bungee cord behind it. Eventually that, that term will become dirtied by people's association with it and it's the association with it that's the problem. Do you mean in the sense that as long as people get the word right uh, or the current trendy word? Well, I look at, look at uh, I guess you have the what's now considered the slur retard which at a time was a medical term, mm. moved on to intellectually disabled, which moved on to special. And even now people use special as, a, as an insult. Mm. So the association with the category is the problem rather than the word you're using. And yeah. the word just gets muddied by people's derogatory use of it. Yeah. And then you change the word for a clean word, which is going to get dirty as well, <laughs> you know, just because of it, people's attitude is the problem. Yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah, I think, it, yeah, the, it's just going to get funner and funner, the, the, the words that we start to use. The euphemisms. The euphemisms. Like, I, like I love the word neurodiversity. Yes. Like, because like, it's like, and then the derogatory term that gets used by people who have neurodiversity um, is which they're just neuronormative or... Oh. Yeah. <laughs> But this is the other thing. The, the, the diversity diversity thing is is an interesting one, particularly when it comes to an individual person. You cannot be neurodiverse mm. unless you've got multiple neuroatypical personalities <laughs> in one person. You're like one person cannot be diverse, can't they? 
No. I mean, I, I am man, I contain multitudes, but... <laughs> uh, what, what, Thank what you, Walt Whitman. Diverse from, or what, what are you diversifying without a reference point? Mm. Yeah. I don't know, but you're, you're part of a queer comedy <laughs> troupe. I'm going to back up a few steps. Good. What's different? Because I was feeling very stupid around that. No, no. Like, yeah. what, what is different? What makes queer comedy uh, n- worth noting as queer comedy? Mm. What, what makes it different from just comedy? Again, labels, identity politics. Marketing? It's, marketing is definitely, I think, a key point. Um, In that if somebody comes to see a show that's marketed as a queer comedy show, they're more likely to be not triggered by the content or feel included or not feel excluded or... Yeah, I mean, I guess the term queer, and if you market yourself as a queer comedy ensemble, it's saying that you do understand some some of the politics and that... Hmm... Does it give you permission to be more edgy with that kind of material, with material that verges on offensive because people understand you as positioned within a particular community? Yeah, I'm I'm not really sure about edgy comedy. And I'm not really sure it's, like, it's interesting probably to take a further step back um, and my position being in a queer comedy ensemble... Um, you know, saying I work with people with perceived disabilities. Um, and, you know, we want to go back to labels. I would say I'm a heterosexual man, but a queer performer. Um, and I have an invisible disability. Okay. What's your invisible disability? I have multiple sclerosis. Or I should say I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2012. That's uh, something that I have some familiarity with. I know. Uh <laughs> That is an interesting one because that's an unperceived disability or potentially will become one depending on the treatment you receive. Yeah. And it, you know, because I have relapsing, remitting MS and it's like some sometimes I'm physically disabled. Yes. And sometimes I'm not. Yes. Uh, depending on the temperature and what you've eaten and other things that you have less control over. Yeah. So, um, yes, I'm waxing and waning between being disabled and not being disabled, um, while on the outside clearly being like a white cisgendered person. And so if I don't mention it, then... People assume a certain privilege from you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So... Is that one of the reasons why you find yourself drawn to sort of outsider groups, do you think? Um. Because, I mean, for a, for a heterosexual man to perform in a queer group is a particular statement about the fact that you, or the possibility that you don't feel necessarily part of the mainstream. Yeah, I think... Um, definitely... Ooh. Do I feel part of the mainstream? I think for a long time I was interested in stand-up, um, but terrified to do it, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, that's not an uncommon thing. Um, and now I've kind of come to think, like, because I, I would go to open mic nights, but I would not perform. 
I would just... Wow, you're a brave man. Yeah. I'm Going <laughs> to an open mic night as an audience member with no interest in performing. Oh, no, there was interest, but, like, I would be too late for the start, sign up. I didn't understand protocols, you know. Uh-huh. I think one time I was on the bill and actually decided, no, I don't want to do this. Okay. Um, and I think that kind of educated me. It's like, oh, I actually don't want to perform to these kind of people. <laughs> 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 I mean, uh, the number of times I've got up on the stage and had that thought. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of part of the game, but yeah. yes. So maybe not these kind of people, but this kind of room or... Yeah, and I think... Yeah, it was just um, the kind of material I wanted to do started to tend itself towards being more queer like I was doing uh, a show end of last year, actually, where it was kind of a clown storytelling show and the character kind of just fell in love with everyone indiscriminately and, you know. Um, and for that to work, I went, well, you know, because the whole show was about him trying to find a lover. Mm. And I said, well, it can't just be him just... Trying to find a lady. Trying to find a lady. It has to be... Like, every person in the audience has to be uh, a possibility. Yeah. Um, so, it was like, oh, this character is bisexual or... Polyamorous. Polyamorous. Or, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, and... Do you ever worry about being accused of appropriation when it comes to that stuff? Hmm. Like... Or have you, first of all, have you ever been or do you ever worry about... No. It? No, I haven't. And I, like... But at the same time, I've only, like, I'm in a queer ensemble and a queer duo, but if I performed solo, I don't know whether I'd be labelling myself as queer. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's more a sort of a community alliance than it is a self-labelling or definition. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't... Yeah, I don't really want to be up there and people go, oh, it's heterosexual man, it's bisexual man, it's queer performer, it's... Yeah, mm. I I sort of evade that stuff mm. relatively hard. I don't tend to talk about my relationships on stage. Mm. And if so, like, I, I will, you know, I have my one-liner dating tips, but they're... <laughs> I, I very carefully alternate between... Uh, male, female, and gender-neutral terms when I hand those out, mm. unless they affect the joke directly. If, unless they're particularly gendered jokes, they are pretty interchangeable. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think, you know, on a kind of a subtle level is a point about love. Very true. Most of them you can switch over without much harm. Mm. So, mm. They're good tips, by the way. Oh, thank you. They're very <laughs> useful. <laughs> Someone once threatened to use them all. And I was like, no, please don't. I often read them and I think, how hard-earned are these? <laughs> how, how, yeah, but I mean, that's part of the fun of... I think that's part of the fun of having a closed chapter in my comedy is that those kind of things are a mystery. A closed chapter? What do you mean? Well, that my, I, consider, I consider most of my stuff pretty much an open book. Mm. There's certain closed chapters. Ah, okay. There's certain, right. there's certain things that I talk about that most people don't talk about openly. Mm. Uh, and so there's often an assumption made that I will talk about anything openly, but I will not talk about things that other people do talk about. Yeah. 
And there's a limited amount of time in one hour. Yeah, it's, <laughs> but, but there's, it's relatively arbitrary from the outside what things I'm not willing to touch, mm. but they're consistent inside me, so suck it. <laughs> <laughs> have you... Um... But it's interesting taking things off the table because it means you have to be more creative in what you do discuss. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, it's... I mean, it's... Mm, like... Popomoka is very much like character comedy, clown, that kind of thing. And like, I'm starting to think more my solo stuff is more personal. So it's that thing of going, well, we have these forms which we're working with um, in Popomoko. And it's like, oh, I want to talk about this, but I can't talk about it directly. Like, I want to talk about my parents' divorce. Mm-hmm. But like in Popomoko, that's not the forum for me to get up there for five minutes and to make cracks about my parents' divorce. Not directly anyway. And it's like, okay, so maybe I need to talk about pandas or or become a panda in order to talk like in to, order to address the feeling of uh, two it, people that don't want to bang? Is that <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Which is, you know, which is a nice challenge. Yeah, I, I think I think a lot of good art comes out of, of saying things. Well, I can't say this, so how do I say mm. what I'm trying to say? I felt like that w- w- with my new show, where there's a there's a very clear villain in the show, which is a real person in my life. So giving them um, a, a fig leaf for their modesty, giving them plausible deniability, mm. not making it possible for someone who watches the show to identify them directly was important to me, but without losing the impact of who they were in my life mm. and why what they said had such, an, such a profound impact on me brought me to this moment of anger that is, you know, each of my last three shows has this one moment because I don't often get furious. <laughs> <laughs> so when, it, when I do, I, I write a show about it. Um, mm. So, but it's interesting because... For my example, diary is a bit like that. Your diaries about that, non-identifying people? Oh, no, no. Um, it's a, a form like of the cryptography? On, the only time I seem to, these days, probably for the last 18 months, the only time I write in my diary or notebook or whatever you want to call it is when I'm angry. Oh, no. That's <laughs> terrible because you'll look back and be like, I was so angry. Oh, not, a, not even like look back. It's just like immediately after I've written it, I just go, I actually don't even believe that. <laughs> the rage is as rage can be irrational and writing it is you know just the release valve yeah and then you realize that you and then you just go oh no i don't i don't believe- stand by any of it i don't stand by any of it you know and then you burn it no i don't burn it i keep it all you keep it all but that's just, this is the thing you're going to look back and just remember your time as being a very angry time yeah. i think i think you need to challenge yourself every time you write something angry to also write something really lame and like sappy and beautiful yeah i do need to do that thank you alice <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome i'm not I'm, i don't know i don't have any right to give you advice mm, i had, had having that. looked back on my teenage uh, journals <laughs> yeah i had um i had thought about that but your encouragement yeah. yeah. Back yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Back yourself. Remember the good times. Yeah. Write them down. Immortalize them. Mm. It's very true, though, but it's it's that classic kind of self-help seminar thing mm. um, where they say, oh, you know, think about something. Gratitude. Yeah, gratitude. Think about something good you've done for someone. Think about something you like about yourself. And, you know, they kind of 
start building this up and people are just sitting there, you know, going, mm, you know, like that. And then they go, think about something you don't like about yourself. And you just go like immediately, that. And you just yeah. immediately know it. It's like, how do we... Mm. Yeah, it's also, it's very hard to write comedy about joyful things or that makes people joyful. It's very easy to be deconstructive. Yeah. It's very so. easy. To, it's, it, negative is downhill. Mm. I think that's why I enjoy physical comedy so much more than, and like moved away from the idea of doing stand-up is that it's just so much more, I find it easier to be joyful in my body and of my body than with words. Why do you think that is? Uh, a certain part of it is just um, the response with an audience is quite visceral when you do something physical. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I'm just trying to think of an example. Um, so recently with Popomoko, we did this um, act called Dance of the Cocktail Prawns. So the cocktail prawns come on stage and kind of do this balletic performance to dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. Uh, and then I come on as a ballet dancer, all dressed in black and black tights and a very dashing top with bare chest. And then I put a napkin into my chest and immediately becomes clear that I'm going to eat all, all of, of the cocktail prawns. All of the cro- cocktail prawns. Cocktail prawns, yes. 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 Cocktail porn is a different thing. (laughs) Yes, yeah. Um, Yeah, so just getting to prance, and then it turns into this strange um, kind of bondage thing later on in the scene. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, and this is the thing, like, yeah, it's a bit like you can't retell people's jokes, um, and you really can't describe what happens in physical comedy or clowning. Because mm. um, it's so much about being in the room, um, like yeah, like having to watch back video of shows I've done where it's like, oh yeah, we totally killed that show when it was being documented, and then you watch it back and you're just like, oh, it just feels so lifeless on the video because it's all about just the energy in the room, energy in the room, furtive glances, you know, just the way you might shift your hands slightly that way to indicate something as opposed to that. Um, yeah, it just, even, like, even, you know, I understand stand-up, um, the energy in the room doesn't carry across on video all the time, and there are some very talented people who edit up and shoot those things to make it... Feel make as it, though it is. Feel as though it is. Um, yeah. But, I, I mean, I think that's a really interesting thing about all kinds of performance, and it, it sort of stands out when it comes to physical comedy particularly, mm. but comedians some of them some of the most kind of old school cynical road dogs know exactly what you mean about the energy in a room mm. and it sounds to you know somebody who has not performed it sounds super wanky like really it just sounds like utter 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 bullshit but mm. it's such a tangible and concrete thing i i wanted at one point to do a series of 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 filming comedy shows from the perspective of the comedian and then doing a post-show breakdown, like a sports game, where you can you can circle the bad, like you can circle the bad vibe in the room. Yeah. You know, it's it's a physical presence in the room. <sighs> is that group of ladies who are here for a hen's night, and they're mm. going to ruin the night for everyone? And you can see the vibes of people around them being affected, taking over the. I mean, yeah. that is, you can. It, it's so 
visible mm. and it's so undeniable when you're doing it, but it's almost impossible to communicate even outside that room. Oh, that would be so amazing to do with, yeah, like a physical comedy show, like have a GoPro strapped onto your head because a lot of it is just like you're constantly looking out at the audience and constantly checking in with individuals and things like that. And just I'd wonder what it would look like. You know, you'd start to notice, oh, I did check in that with per- that person who wasn't enjoying the show the entire evening more than anyone else. The number of times yeah. you look at the yeah. one person who is not enjoying mm. themselves. And often they'll turn out to be someone who just was enjoying themselves but not with their face, <laughs> which is the most ungenerous thing to do, just sucking in all the joy and not giving anything back. But Yeah, it's tough. So, so. To, to return to perceived disability, well, yeah. what's oh. the actual work that you do? Oh, okay. Well, th- yeah, I was going to come back around to that as well. I think the other reason why it sort of started gravitating towards physical comedy and physical theatre is because a lot of the um, teaching artist stuff that I do um, with the groups that I work with, um, we're making art. We're making theatre and comedy and whatever else. And because they have intellectual disabilities, um, it is a lot easier for them to express themselves in ways other than words. Mm-hmm. So, so when you say working with, you mean teaching? Yeah, teaching. Yeah. So being led by what they're interested in. Um, yeah, I think like like any good director, not trying... Uh, I know this because I did it the other week. Like, I was so intent on this duo doing a particular thing. Oh, I said, I want them to do this particular thing. I was totally missing the brilliant thing that they were doing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I felt very frustrated after that. I felt disappointed. I was giving them bum steers when what they were doing was brilliant. Um, and it was this sort of strange thing. They were, yeah, they were doing like a send-up of fame, fame and fortune. I just couldn't see it. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, is it not the job of the performer to communicate what they're trying to do? Mm. Never blame the audience. <laughs> Never blame the audience. Um, I mean, genuinely, you can definitely sometimes blame the audience. Yeah. I know sometimes, it, yeah, shows can, or shows, yeah, performances can resonate with people very differently, mm-hmm. um, you know, depending on what they focus on. Um, you know, it's the classic things like I've come out of shows and people are like, oh, I loved that. And I'd be like, oh, how? <laughs> Where? When? When? What? <laughs> yeah, why didn't you tell me? Uh, it's an, yeah, it is an interesting thing. I think that, that there are one of the most interesting parts of comedy particularly is how some people come in with a very fixed idea of what you can and can't say mm. or what you mean or even what bringing up a certain topic says about you, which is why I'm interested in your kind of self-definition as a queer performer because you're sort of selecting your audience. You're selecting a particular kind of audience. Mm. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, Justice and Trainwreck, performed at Adelaide Fringe and we're out there flowering in costume which is our cowboy outfits and our cowboy hats um and you know our hook line when we're out there flowering is uh you know you want to see some cowboys perform historical reenactments of tragic events and yeah you can like 
some of the responses we started getting, you know, oh, is it like Brokeback Mountain? Yeah. And it's like, oh, that's your only reference point. Okay, radio. Like, at first it annoyed me. I'm like, oh, that's your only reference point to queer culture. Um, yeah, so, was, you know, rather than getting angry going, oh, well, no, they're interested. Yeah, did you, if you watch Brokeback Mountain. Then... Yeah, if you, if you know what it is, then, you know, if you're not just walking straight past me and brushing me off. So then it became, ah, uh, okay. Yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, our show's like Brokeback Mountain, except when we die, we come back to life straight away. <laughs> and people are like, oh, that's okay. Oh, good. <laughs> like, they're, they're happy. They're happy with that. So, but it became that thing of like, yeah, not, not hiding what it is. So it was always like, if we're telling people it's queer cowboys who perform historical reenactments. Because the whole, the whole game of the show is that these two cowboys, Dwayne Justice and Jake Trainwreck, love each other. Mm. And all they want to do is kiss. Mm-hmm. So... I feel it's important to be upfront about that. <laughs> yeah, I find yeah that I, I struggle with that sometimes because I want people to come in and be surprised by things in my show. Yeah. So I, I but and also because I don't really know how to describe. It's very hard to describe what you do unless you decide beforehand what you're going to do and then try to do that. Mm. Yeah. So my trick is just saying a couple of very different things and hope <laughs> that they're intrigued by how I feel the gap between those two things. <laughs> Yeah, that could work. I mean, people would often ask us, what historical events do you perform? And we wouldn't tell them. Mm. One, because... The good ones. Yeah. Well, yeah, one, because you don't want to give it away, but two, it's also that thing that I love about physical comedy. I mean, nothing's off out of bounds if you're you're good enough. Mm -hmm. But it's the thing like... We do physical comedy, so if we're out on the street and people ask us what historical events we do and we tell them, it seems very harsh. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, there are many tragic historical events. There are many tragic historical events and whatever the first one is that comes to your mind when you're listening to this, we're probably performing it. So, yeah, and, like, I think that it was very quickly learning, you know, telling people and just getting that, really? Okay, um... Thank you. Thank you, a, no, thank you. Thank, thank you, no, thank see. you. Well, you seemed not like a nice boy, but uh, good day to you, well, sir. I mean, there's also that terrible thing that a lot of open micers think that talking about shocking and tragic things that people, for a good reason, mm. don't talk about uh, is the way to comedy. And it's, it's less that no one's thought of that joke before as that they've thought better of that joke before. Yeah, it's... Um, the angle at which you approach it from. Yeah, so I can understand why people would be wary if they don't know you, if you're not, you know, a trusted name in comedy. If you're not, if you're not uh, Woolies home brand sort of sanitised, yeah. they're not sure if it's going to be one of those. This is the thing, you're asking people not only to pay money, but to pay an hour of their time into what could mm. potentially be just the most cringy, unpleasant hour of their life. And... You can't guarantee, however good you are, you can't guarantee that it will suit them. And mm. so you can't guarantee that it won't be just an awful waste of their life. Which is the hardest thing about <laughs> selling comedy. Because I can't guarantee that you're going to like me. Mm. Might just not be your cup of tea, you know? Might not be your cup of tea. 
Do you do you feel pressure around the selling your personality? Yeah. Mm. Absolutely, because I don't know what it what it is that is marketable about me from mm. the inside. I'm just doing life. Doing the things. Yeah. And uh it's it's occasionally you get sort of rain checks on how you're perceived on stage. Mm. You get you get, you know, whatever it is for anything from young ladies shouldn't swear to uh I used to do a, jo- a joke about models on 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 uh, magazine covers and mm. how, you know, as a teenager I thought, well I'm never going to look like that. And then some older lady of a non-traditional body shape in the audience shouted out, "You already do." Which is very kind and generous of her, but made the point to me that like it's it's on stage you look more powerful than you are. You look more beautiful than you are. You look more confident than you are. Yeah. So if you're making jokes about that stuff, you need to make sure that they're on the same page as you about your opinion of yourself. Yeah. Something that could be self-deprecating can be seen as arrogant if they don't know your whole hmm. game, if they don't know you. Yeah. I don't know if that answers the question at all. Yes, there's pressure to, to market myself, but I don't really know how to market. I spend a lot of time trying not to fit into boxes, and now my whole job is trying to fit myself into a box. <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, it's tough, man. What do you got for us? I just, my, my solution is just to become the reference point. What kind of comedy do you do? I want someone to be like, oh, it's a kind of an Alice Fraser type comedian. I think I might start doing that as well. <laughs> what kind of comedy? It's like Alice Fraser's comedy. Yeah, exactly. Go for it. Yeah. I mean, except it's physical comedy, not stand up. And um, I'm a man, and <laughs> again, the I'm, only, I'm in costume. Oh, wait a second. You're always in costume. Yeah, the only yeah. way is to kind of alternate again to do that thing where you tri- triangulate between two very different comedians mm. to indicate that you're nothing like either of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know? A little bit Groucho Marx, a little bit Daniel Kitson, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. Just so that what they know is that you're not like something it, they it, already It's porous. Know. You know, mm. if you provide enough gaps, they can, yeah. They can, mm. you, you fit somewhere in between other things that they know, really. Yeah. Uh, recently, I've just been looking for a bit more work, like just to fill in the gaps. No. Fill in the financial gaps. Never. And, and I just had like... Not in this... Not in this, not in this current climate, no. Um, you part of the gig economy? The gig economy... Uh, Going from one no- contract job to another? Oh, yeah, I guess freelance gig or something like... Yeah, freelance. Um, but just having like maybe two or three days where just going, I don't know if I actually have any skills. <laughs> like, like, and you talk about marketing yourself and you, you start to look at your CV and, you know, you start to look at the jobs I had and how I got those jobs. But this is the thing about doing all of the jobs that you do, which are all couched deeply in euphemism. Mm. Like, you know, I work with yeah. you know, people with perceived disabilities yeah. to somebody who's not genuinely already in that industry. Mm. That looks like a made up job. <laughs> I mean, what does that what does that mean mm. to to a layperson? I'm not mocking people with disabilities or people who work with people with disabilities, but mm. I think that that's protected a lot of layers of of what you're actually doing. Yeah, I mean, I guess the participants in the programs that I work with, it's just providing them with um, the same opportunities and experiences that anyone would like to have. Mm-hmm. You know, 
anyone would like to go to a cooking program, which is one of the things that I do. Um, you know, all these participants would love to go out to a disco. Um, so you're sort of somewhere between teacher, carer. Teacher, carer, facilitator, um, just bring in the fun times. Put that on your resume. <laughs> I think that's gen- generally how I sell myself. If I if I know someone within the organisation I'm trying to work with, I'm like, yeah, people hire me because... I mean, you're an interface, more or less, between people who can't necessarily translate the real world into their terms mm. and who might have difficulty with the world understanding what they're trying to say or do. Yeah. So... You are the woman in Star Trek who says what the computer says. <laughs> <laughs> to yeah. the captain I'm going to have to talk to my cousins about that Who are big Trekkie fans um, I'll follow up with that one But <laughs> yeah <laughs> That's a, so weird to think of myself yeah. that's, that's who you are Yeah. I mean tell me I'm wrong please But No I don't think you're wrong I was simplifying for comic effect Yeah it's <laughs> good Now I've got I'm just really starting to think about it now hmm. I guess I do have skills Yes, <laughs> after clearly. the after the two or three days of um, you know, thinking about it, uh, I do have skills and like I teach clown, like mm-hmm. um, and that is like comedy. You're always telling your stuff to a room. You're always tailoring whatever you teach to the classroom and context in which you find yourself. Um, you know, um, so but it was also interesting to. F- find or think about myself having skills uh, like I'm not afraid of boredom like I was like oh yeah like I wrote a list I was like yeah that's I reckon that's one of my skills like I'm not afraid of boredom I'm not afraid what do you mean by that like like for example I have a part-time job at the moment which has nothing to do with the arts apart from the fact that I get to listen to podcasts all day while I walk around putting um, government paraphernalia into people's letterboxes incredibly tedious job people might find that really difficult I find it probably the most enjoyable job that's really interesting Mm. so you don't you're not afraid of of repetitive jobs yeah I think there's a difference, though, between that because then in that instance, your mind is your own. There's a, it was yeah. one of the things I found very difficult about the corporate world or I find it... I mean, this is one of my particular Achilles heels. My difficulty is I find it very hard to put my attention on something that I'm not interested in for any extended period mm. of time, which is the most self-indulgent of difficulties to have. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is the ultimate privilege is to go, oh, I can't be bothered caring about this because it's boring. Mm. But I, I, it, it's a... It's, quite possibly ADD to that level of it. Mm. Just my mind will slide off something that I am not interested in. So maybe that is the actual skill. Uh, we have a skill for our mind to be our own. Like that is our skill. Like, yeah, it's like, either a skill or an, a disability. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, Which... that works. Yeah. In, in some contexts, some of my skills are disabilities and uh, yeah. So, but I think a lot of people don't have that skill mm. for their mind to be their own because um, it's much easier, the easier path maybe. Possibly. I don't you, know. Do mm. you know much about sort of new age philosophy? You're wearing the scarf of a man who might. 
Um, yes, I, my mother knitted me this scarf. Uh, it is beautiful wool and rainbow coloured. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a beautiful scarf. I think I have a very scattered knowledge of New Age philosophy, so maybe try me. Well, I this is one of the sort of characteristics of this woman came up to me after a show and told me I was an indigo child and I ended up writing my SBS article for this week about it because it intrigued me. And one of the things that she said was, you know, you go your own way, mm. which is this particular either spoiled bratness or ability or disability or mm. undiagnosed ADD or whatever it happens to be. And I went down this deep well of... I had just never really touched New Age philosophy, I think, because the Buddhism that I grew up in was quite conservative and okay. a bit dismissive yeah. of that stuff. So although arguably I was a hippie child, I was not a hippie child who was touched by crystals or <laughs> energies of that, you know, of that nature. It was just, it's just a completely foreign hmm. language to me. But this woman had such certainty and such sincerity that I, was like, I went down this well. Don't do it if you, <laughs> like it's a very useful thing to do if you've eaten a lot of something that you need to throw up. But there is, okay. there is some. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of very sweet and lovely and probably accurate stuff there. And then there's also a lot of like deeply manipulative bullshit. Mm. So I was just wondering whether you. Yeah, it's interesting because my dad is quite um, quite a curious man, mm-hmm. um, as in. He's just curious about the world. Um, but where I grew up, Mount Gambia, um, is a country town of about 20,000 people, you know, 500 kilometres away from Adelaide, 500 kilometres away from Melbourne. So you're not just popping into the city to kind of get a more... Progr- a dose of culture? A dose of culture, a progressive worldview, perhaps. Um, so I kind of grew up there, but my dad, quite curious about the world. So... Um, was kind of exposed to that way of thinking and new age things. You know, he um, is a farmer, well, experimental farmer, you know, biodynamics, you know, things experimental like... Experimental farmer <laughs> sounds very haphazard. Yeah, but I yeah. I more sort of deeply researched than that. So, you know, he'd do things like he'd give me pieces of wire and, you know, he'd go, walk across the paddock, just walk across the paddock, Dave. And, you know, he's doing the kind of water divination thing. And, you know, he knew where the, the water pipes from the dam to where he wanted to water were. So he was kind of testing to see whether I would divine where the water was. Oh, fascinating. Um, being channeled, channeled um, you know, underground. Yeah, blind, double blind testing. Yeah. <laughs> the placebo of water divination. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, I, I remember, like, when I broke my arm, I would have magnets, oh. like, on my arm. Because, um, you know, you looked it up and going, oh, this is going to heal the bone faster. Did it? Um Faster than what, I guess. Yeah, yeah, faster than what, exactly. Um, Yeah, I'm not exactly sure or better. Um, Yeah, I remember him, like, he would put before... He was, like, one of those people who play music to their plants, um, which I think is now a thing. It's an actual thing. Like, if you play metal to the plants, they will die. They'll be more angry. They'll be more angry, yes. It was uh, the angry tomato sauce batch of 2003. So, um, you know, but playing them classical music and things like that, putting water in tanks before he watered the plants and like swirling it eight ways one way, ten ways another way. And I accidentally bought some water the other day that had the frequency of the moon. Oh, yeah. 
which was that I was on the phone uh, and uh, was buying just water and a carrot on my way into work, uh, writing for <laughs> a, a show. And, uh, to, you know, just a snack and, and something to drink. High times, water I, and a I carrot. Had, I, I had a water bottle and then I lost it. I had it for like a year and then mm. I lost it. And so I thought I'll just buy a bottle of water, keep myself hydrated. And as I bought it, I was on the phone and they said, that'll be $5.20, thanks. And I handed over the money. And as I was walking out uh, on the phone, my friend said, uh, that's a lot of money for water and a carrot. And I thought, oh, yeah, so it is, actually. I'd just done it sort of absentmindedly, but it's too late. I'm on my way to work anyway. And then I looked at the bottle and it said it had the frequency. It was infused with the frequency of the moon. And and that was upsetting. I mean, fine. And I, I wondered what it meant. And apparently they play the, the resonance of the moon. They've measured the resonance of mm. the moon with something. Yeah. And they play it to the water. Mm-hmm. And then they sell you the water for five dollars, and um, it was very nice water. It tasted lovely. I'm not sure if I would rather that they were making it up, or if I would rather they were actually doing it. Mm. I mean, I'm just I'm making the assumption that it is woo-woo bullshit that it like it doesn't affect the power of the water yeah. which is you know a, a, i don't know any of the science i'm going to make that assumption mm. that's probably very cynical of me but assuming it doesn't work would i be happier for them to just be making it up to get money out of gullible people or like i think i find it quite distressing if they really believe it and are doing it because it seems like wasted labor mm. I, w- I would definitely give something a go I don't. I don't know about residents of resonances of the moon, or frequencies. Res- yeah, freq- fre- the resonant frequencies of the moon. Because part of me just goes, well, yes, you know, the moon is circulating the planet, and it, you know, affects the oceans, which are large bodies of water. Why wouldn't it affect, you know, our bodies, which, you know, are, Do, uh, ha- like, ha- are the have only water. women at this water factory on their period? Like, what is? <laughs> I don't. Like, I just don't know how far they're taking it. I don't know what playing music to water does. Mm. It seems like the kind of thing that even if it does have effect, have an effect, why are you assuming that it's a good effect? Mm. Well, I did my own scientific testing on something. Um, is the classic, um, you, you put classic, actually, maybe no, nobody's ever heard of this, um, but uh, you put cooked brown rice in a jar. Yes. Um, or two jars cooked brown rice and on one jar you write hate (laughs) (laughs) you know where i'm going with this on the other jar you put love yeah you leave them in the same environment yes for however long and they did test there's youtube clips to testify to this um and when they came back in a couple of weeks time the one with hate written on it was all moldy and black and the one with love written on it was still okay. Okay. And you did this test? I did it with, uh, yeah, I did it with brown rice. And? And the one with hate went black and the one with love stayed okay after about a week. I that is a stretch for me. I know. But then I started going, well, I was a bit, you know, it's... Maybe pro- you were more careful with the jar that said love. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Um, the jar with love was polished quite nicely and the jar with 
right. I was like, oh, I probably could have, um, you know, put that in hot water a bit longer. And <laughs> I mean, the trick would be to write it on the lids, then put them in a dark place, put the put, write it on the inside of the lid. Yeah. Screw the lids on blind, mm. and then look afterwards. So yeah. But ah oh, man, not, not scientific. No, oh, you need you need at least ten jars. You, you I'm going to come to your house and it's just going to be overgrown with mold of various mm. stages of this experiment. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That wouldn't be hard in my current bedroom, old Victorian house. Oh dear, damp issues, you know. But rent will increase nonetheless. Rent will increase. <laughs> rent grows like mold. Yeah. Someone has written hate on the inside of that real estate agent. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Anyway. Um, but yeah, I guess like I would give things a go and like when I was diagnosed with MS, um, one of the things they do, they did at the hospital, but my dad was very quick to follow up with this, you know, Mm. getting online, you know, looking up all the things. Um, they gave me a book called Overcoming MS, um, which was done by Professor George Jelinek. Are you familiar? Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. So, um, and, yeah, my dad was on that straight away. And, you know, in that sense, my uh, my mindset, which, you know, I got from my parents and whatever, um, was very useful in that circumstance to give something a go, which, like, getting to see a neurologist once a year, um, always charming experience, like, just won't give it credence. And it's like, oh, okay. Because, you know, it doesn't adhere to double-blind tests and, you know... Well, I mean, there's a couple of things that I would say to that. The first mm. of which is that the placebo effect works. Mm. That if you believe something works, it is it does have some effect on you. So mm. there's no harm in giving things a shot. On the other hand, I grew to resent people coming to me with the cure... Mm. Have you tried paleo? Paleo works. Have you tried this? Have you tried that? And the idea that, you know, a disease can be overcome entirely through the value Mm. of positive thinking, I think, is pretty crappy thing to do to the people who think as positively as possible and still die or still suffer or still degenerate. Uh, Yeah, I think giving as many things a go as you can plausibly afford mm. yeah but at some point it becomes manipulative of people's despair mm. yeah definitely hmm. people sort of chasing this dragon of the ultimate cure for anything I think is always dangerous yeah I guess for myself I don't think of it as a cure mm. I think of it as um, protocol what do you mean by protocol? A form, a form of a structure. Yeah, I was going to say control. Like it, it at least gives me a sense, right or wrong, although I tend to think right, um, of control. That I'm not, I'm not waiting around. Yeah. For the magic pill, the injection that's going to take it away, the operation that's going to fix it all, because um, there's definitely that stuff out there. Um, yeah, I think certainly one of the most pernicious things about diseases like MS, particularly relapsing remitting, is that they're very unpredictable, mm. they are uncontrollable, and the feeling of helplessness in the face of them 
can do a number on you. It can make you mm. give up entirely or mm. yeah. give in to hopelessness or despair, which in itself is a, mm. a bad mental d- disease. It's not good for you to feel mm. despair in that way. Did you struggle with that? Uh, do you? Yeah, I was going to say, still do, yeah, Uh, every day. Um, Yeah, like, it's an interesting thing because so much a part of the program, yeah, let's call it a program, um, is diet. Mm. Um, It's quite, it's not the most strict diet, um, but um, so it's... uh, God, I haven't said what it is for a while. So it's basically uh, vegan plus seafood trying to avoid saturated fats and heated oils, Um, so processed foods and things like that, Um, which – so eating out is difficult, you know, um, which sometimes makes socialising difficult and things like that. Um, So it's kind of interesting, like every meal I have – yeah, is it is it not, is it an opportunity for, to for me to reflect on my health to make for me to reflect on whether I'm making a good choice or a bad choice uh a black white or a gray choice in terms of where foods fall <laughs> so um yeah so reflection is good constant reflection makes it difficult to enjoy life <laughs> sometimes yeah instead of sitting down and saying bon appetit you say sit, yeah. sit down and say meditate on death yeah uh, is this going to kill me <laughs> um is it a vanilla, vanilla slice yes yes it is okay yes it's probably going to kill me so no uh, and to be fair vanilla slice will kill everybody in time exactly <laughs> exactly and that's why it's like you know i'm not special <laughs> um definitely not special it's like yeah those the things I'm not meant to eat are going to kill other people as well, <laughs> not just people with their mass. Not just people. So, I mean, taking control of your health in any way, I think, is a useful thing to do. Of course, of course. Um, yeah, it's. Oh no! How, <laughs> how were you diagnosed? Um, if you don't mind, Mark. Oh, yeah, no, I've done a show about it, so... It's all out there. <laughs> it's all out there. Send you know. me the DVD. Yeah, oh, God, no. <laughs> um, it was my first solo show. It's like, yeah, just talk about that thing. Um, so, uh, I it was the day of the Japanese tsunami. Uh, so, what's that, March 11, 2011? Uh, and I was sitting on the sitting on the couch talking to my girlfriend at the time, um, and, you know, kind of watching the TV coverage, which is kind of, you know, totally addictive and shocking at the same time. Um, and just like those kind of waves rolling across the screen, almost like some kind of natural static. Um, so I was watching that for two or three hours. And then when I went to get up off the couch, my left leg was numb. Um, and I went, oh, that's a bit odd. Maybe I've just been sitting in an awkward position. So go to bed, wake up, oh, left leg's still numb. Um, you know, go to work, talk to my friend Liz, who's kind of studying natural medicines and stuff like that. And she's like, I use cinnamon's really good for <laughs> circulation. <laughs> Not really having consumed cinnamon outside of, you know, on like sprinkling on top of my uh, creamed rice. I was like, oh yeah, I'll have some cinnamon. So I went and just got like 
dumped two or three teaspoons of cinnamon in a uh, in a cup and put some hot water with it, not realizing that often one of the tests in those horrible fringe not horrible those fringe game shows it's like they get you to eat a mouthful of cinnamon dry cinnamon yeah yeah yeah. and i didn't realize this this was a difficult thing although i should have remembered because i tried i was scooping in the cinnamon thinking oh this will fix my leg so and it probably wasn't until two two or three days after my left leg went numb that i decided to go to my gp which is quite a while that is yes and it says a lot about the kind of person I am. Like, I, yeah, I don't, I'm like, oh, yeah, it'll, it'll be okay. This thing will come right. It's like, and I don't think even though I have been diagnosed with MS now, my mindset has been shifted that much. Like, I still will delay before going to seek medicine yeah, or things like that. So, but yeah, and then, you know, my doctor, you know, jumped on Wikipedia He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you should probably go to emergency. Um, Yeah, and then it just kind of rolled on from there. But I was, it was interesting because six months before that, I'd finally admitted to myself that I was having anxiety attacks. And I'd gone to the same GP and he went, well, okay, so seems to me from what you've told me, you're eating a high saturated fat diet, lots of sugar, lots of caffeine. Let's just cut all that out and see how it goes. So for six months, I had been anxiety free and feeling fantastic and just like, oh my God, I could have been living like this my entire life. And I've only just... Sweet six months. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet six month window of like, you know, perfect health. Um, But of course, not really because looking back on it retrospect six months before that i'd been up in sydney and i'd had quite a torrid weekend of partying and went and got curry with my friend on the sunday night before i came back down to melbourne and my left arm had gone numb for about an hour and a half and once i started piecing it together i went oh that was actually ms that was the first attack that i noticed anyway so but yeah so like when i was um when I was going through getting diagnosed with MS, I was probably the happiest I've ever been in my life. Like I was anxiety free, which showed up in, yeah, just my general approach to things. And then do you think that being diagnosed made you feel less or more anxious in that I imagine it felt, you felt a lot of dread mm. and worry, but anxiety and anxiety are two different things when one is in response to real world things that are worth worrying about Mm. and one is sort of out of the blue for no reason or arguably a very realistic response to the reality of the universe yeah yeah, exactly yeah um yeah anxiety kind of being an internal thing like your internal clock which is often unrelated to what's going on around you and yeah external forces bringing things on you um yeah I think it's like I would always be, always be someone with anxiety. Mm-hmm. And again, it's just how you deal. Like I will always be someone diagnosed with MS. It's just about how I deal as to how, how it all turns out. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a good, I think that's a good way to approach it. I, I remember my mum saying a similar thing. You know, you don't have control over what happens. All you have control over is how you how you behave or how mm. you feel or how you respond, how you deal with it moment to moment. 
Where can people find you online? Um, I didn't pay my um, website fees, so my personal website is down. Wasn't really anything interesting on there anyway. Um, I'm in Instagram at DJ Maney, uh, Twitter the same handle, uh, on Facebook, David Maney, um, also Justice and Trainwreck, also Popo Moco, so that's P-O space P-O space M-O space C-O because it's a little bit difficult to find. The short for post postmodern comedy. comedy. Yeah, whatever that is. Well, I think it is whatever it is. Mm. Uh, thank you so much for having tea with me. Thanks for having me, Alice. Leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return.